Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoo the Torah. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tattoos and Torah. I'm Rabbi Iggy from the Chuva Center. Um, we have a guest today uh, talking to us about a subject that I think is of interest of uh, well, pretty much everybody in the Western world. Uh, it is part of both of culture and of mental health and, of course, personal growth. Uh, we have with us uh, uh, my friend, uh, who I love very much, uh, Seth Menachem, uh, who is a psychotherapist in Los Angeles. Uh, he trained uh, with uh, inpatient rehabilitation uh, clients working with substance abuse, gambling issues, process addictions. Uh, he, of course, uh, works with a lot of uh, different uh, psychological and personality disorders. Uh, he now has a, his own private practice, uh, growing and successful private practice, I might add, uh, in uh, in his office in Valley Village. Uh, he lives, of course, in Los Angeles, California. Uh, thanks, Seth. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me, Iggy. Um, so uh, I guess first and foremost, right, sort of, uh, you did start as a therapist. I did, <laughs> did not. <you? laughs> so I started as an actor and a writer for uh, a long time in Los Angeles. I actually first had a psychology degree from Emory University, you know, 20 years ago um, or more. Um, I love psychology. I always loved acting, did not even understand that it could be a possibility in the world I grew up in. And after college, I was working for a bit and realized I was not happy. And I jumped in a car and moved to Los Angeles and spent uh, decades acting and writing and eventually decided that it wasn't the life I was enjoying anymore and that um, I really wasn't feeling fulfilled by it and it wasn't anything based on that, that regardless of the hard work I put into something, I felt like, you know, the payout was based on something that was out of my control. And I wasn't happy. I really wasn't even enjoying the jobs I was booking for the most part. So I decided to go back to school. I had sold a TV show. I was writing a TV show with a friend at Stars that we were starring in. And while sitting in the writer's room and creating the episodes, even then I had a thought that it would be really fun if after work I could go see clients in a private practice, which is a very strange thought to have while you have a TV show on a network. So we did about six, seven episodes for them and a president, a new president took over and the show got canceled. And I decided that I wanted to go back to school and I wasn't sure how I was going to do it, but I jumped in and I did it and have not looked back and have really just loved the experience from the day I stepped into school. And so I met you while training at a rehab where uh, I did addiction work and continue to do addiction work in various rehabs. But I have always wanted to have a private practice. And so my goal was really to set up a private practice. That was my intention, to have a really diverse private practice. And I'm lucky enough to be able to have done it. That's that's very cool. I, I think for a lot of people, um, this idea of changing careers, if you will, or uh, right, sort of like is is daunting and and frightening, and I think a lot of people um, don't get to do what you've done, but also um, 
I think I, a lot of people. Uh, sorry, go on. I, I think a lot of people imagine that they can't right. do what I've done. That's right. right? Uh, clients included will talk to me about it. Right. Even clients who know that I had another career right. will still speak to me as if it's an impossibility. <laughs> That's right. That I love, right. The cognitive right? dissonance is strong in that one. Yeah. At, at, at 40 years old, I started a new career. They know this, and yet right. still. I have this conversation with them as if it's an impossibility. So and what, I will, yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, right before that, what do you think that is? Why do you think that sort of clients, even though they know in their heads that you have had a career change, still talk to you as if it's impossible? I think that we all have fears that prevent us from doing things, uh, even in light of evidence, right to the contrary. And therefore, we rationalize what we need to in order to feel safe. And it is very uncomfortable to do something different, to take that first step to say, I'm going to shift my life in a really large way is scary. And therefore, we use those rationalizations to stay comfortable. Right. I mean, you say safe, right? What I hear a little bit is, is uh, toxic, sort of like, sort of instead of like, you think it's safe, right? You think it's but, but really preventing, I... preventing you from doing something that you should be doing, could be doing, would be much happier doing, perhaps. Right. So forgive me. The word safe, I don't mean safe in terms of you are protected. Right. Right. I say safe meaning comfortable. So, right. right we, we all sort of repeat these childhood schemas um, that aren't healthy necessarily, but are right. comfortable because we know them. Right. Right. Is that, was the, So was there a moment in your head where you're like, but no, right. So like I've dreamt to being an actor, right. People say, you know, follow your passion, right. If you, if you work a job that is your passion, you'll never work a day in your life or one of those like, you know, ridiculous. Right. Sort of views, right. Like, so, right. There must've been moments to be like, no, I'll just hold, if you just hold on for a little bit, like I'll get discovered, my ship will come in and so forth and so on. No. I think what happened is it's probably what took me so long to do it. Right. As I told myself that story for a long time, which is, you know, I'm making money or every time I thought like, oh, this is just too difficult. I would book a job and think, well, I'm getting closer to something. I would sell a TV show and I'm like, this is it. Sold the show, right? This is my career. This is what it's going to look like. And if right. the show doesn't go or the show doesn't do well, you know, there was this weird thing of like starting over again. And right. and the other was that my day-to-day -day happiness when I looked at it, you know, it wasn't paying off. I, I wasn't enjoying my life the way I should have been. And so I told myself, if I reach this level of success, then I will be happy. And right. one, I have no control over the level of success that I'm going to reach in a career like that. And and two, I need to find happiness in my day to day, regardless of what I'm doing. So yeah. I could find happiness, you know, working as an actor or saying that I'm okay making a certain amount of money or you know, saying that regardless of sort of the financial success or career success that I get to, I can still be okay with that. And when I looked at myself and how I felt, I realized I wasn't enjoying myself the way I should have been. I had told myself this narrative for a very long time that this is the thing for me. And one, I don't believe there's one thing for any of us. You know, I, I, I'm bright and I'm curious and there's more than one thing I like to do in life. And I also have children. I have two children and I don't think that I was being the best involved parent in the life that I was leading or the best husband. I was frustrated and I felt, um, 
it started to feel like the world was unfair. My whole narrative was a little skewed and I knew it. And I said to myself, I'm not happy. What, what am I doing? There's other things I want to do in life. Why am I so scared? Right. The idea of like going back to graduate school seemed crazy. I hadn't been in school in so long and it felt intimidating. And so I often have succeeded by not anticipating things, by saying this is something I'm curious about. Let me jump in and just try and see how it goes. And that's really how I chose the graduate school. I went by proximity. It was the closest to my house where I knew I could go in the evenings and still work during the day. And I knew that it was, you know, a school that was um, heavy into writing and I was a writer and I could write quickly. And that's sort of how I chose my first step. <coughs> Forgive me. So I chose my first step by what was, um, you know, what? I don't want to say what was easiest because it really wasn't. It's not even a fair statement. The truth is I, I, I wanted to do it and I jumped in and did it and decided that I would figure it out as I went along. Right. And I didn't have the money for it. Uh, I took out grad, you know, uh, I took out student loans and I stepped into school and immediately realized I loved it. I was smart. I was good at it and never looked back. I booked uh, a movie while I was in school that I turned down because I didn't want to leave class. Uh, I think I did one job maybe on a modern family or something because, you know, there was money involved and it didn't interfere with classes. But for the most part, I, I stopped acting. I told my agents that, uh, School was the most important thing that I would never leave school for any auditions uh, or jobs. And it became my full-time thing. I took out loans and I did what I had to do. And I really have loved it. I mean, from truly loved it from the day I stepped into school. That's not an exaggeration. That's, that's, a, I mean, that's amazing. I, I think, right. Cause that's a, a perfect example for things we talk about all the time in the podcast and in the center, all the, you know, which is to take action, to move and, and to not think that, uh, happiness is something that sort of you get, but that you have to work on it. You have to decide, you have to decide to be happy, right? You have to decide. And, and just for the listeners, by the way, right. When I first met Seth, what in walks into the room, right. And you can't see him, but he has movie star looks, right. <laughs> I mean, like, he does. He has a gorgeous wife. He has two beautiful children, right. Like he was acting. He was, you know, like from the side, what people would say, like, like this is the life I want, right? Sort of like he's right. He he's doing it. He's making it in Hollywood, you know. And and why would he give this up? Why would you give like fame and fortune and you know and the possibility for that? But but in that sense, I think what you're saying is a lot more powerful for me. And I think for a lot of people who are listening, that right, your choice to be happy, right, came from an inside impetus of yours, and therefore it had a lot more meaning than. Uh, what other people thinks are the trappings of happiness, right? I'll be happy when, you know, I get the movie, I get the thing, I get the wife, whatever, right? Sure. And then we're scared to move forward because of that. Right. Yeah. And I, and I left a business that, you know, I could have succeeded in and continue to, right? I, I have a TV show I wrote before I went to school that's now in development somewhere. Right. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's comical to me. But it's all fun, right? So now if I ever had to write anything, I do it because I enjoy it. Right. There's none of that sort of pressure and that you know, horrible feeling that this is the only way I find happiness. But it, right. it doesn't matter whether that thing goes or doesn't go, that I really am enjoying my life. And to me, if you can build a life where every day I can find enjoyment in it, and, and I think that enjoyment, by the way, is tied to purpose. 
right? So the career I had before, I wasn't able to find purpose in my day to day. And you could say that's my failing, right? That was my own stuff. And that the career I have now, I am able to every single day feel like I did something that gave me purpose. And as a result of that purpose, I feel good. And it has shifted everything for me. Right. And as a result of that purpose, now you also are helping others feel good, right? So like being a therapist, right? Now your your world revolves around trying to help others, which is even better that, than my book, right? That is my, that is my purpose, right? right? So my purpose is exactly that, that I got to work with someone and help make their lives better and do everything right. I can. You know, I'm so invested in every client and, and that as a result makes me feel better, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things about that in that sense and you and your personality is and th- I think this is this started be- way before COVID, but like so, so it, Seth is one of those uh, again, so like amazing people who are on Instagram has this really in- interesting, cool presence, right? So, uh, you should definitely follow him on Instagram, right? Um, and and then he was like, okay, I have like I don't know, I have like an hour, ask me anything about uh, my yes. psychology, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Which, which, right? Most people will be like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna. Uh, decompress. I'm gonna go get a sandwich, right? Unfortunately, I think some. I'm just gonna go get a drink, whatever. But like, right? I think that sort of most people will be like, but you were like, no, I love this. Like, ask me. Like, how can I be of service? How can right? What would you like I, to know? I always loved being proactive, right? When, right? when when I was still acting and writing, I had friends who were single and were upset about being single and said nothing was changing for them. And one night I decided to write a bio on a friend that was very funny but truthful. And I went on GoDaddy and I bought this site called My Single Peeps and I stuck it up there <laughs> literally at midnight without telling him. I knew he would laugh. And the next day, because of Facebook at the time where people would see things, I got all these emails. And so then that grew. And then a paper in L.A. hired me, the Jewish Journal, to write a column for them for every week, uh, uh, write a column for them every week. And then a paper in the Valley asked me to start writing for them every week. And then all of a sudden I was a guy who was writing articles on strangers who would write into the newspaper. And I became this sort of guy who set people up. Now, it wasn't any passion of mine to set people up. I just thought (laughs) I have friends who say it's so hard to meet someone. And I thought, oh, why not just put yourself out there and see what happens? And I think I believe like when you have an idea, we always hold ourselves back from doing it. And if you can look at the world in sort of a different way, which is it's not so scary. And what's the worst that can happen? You sort of jump in and do things. And so I've always found my projects that way. I went around my neighborhood and and I met elderly people in the neighborhood that I loved. And I started hanging out with them and getting to know their stories. And one day I filmed one of the guys in the neighborhood, uh, um, Frank. And I asked him for some advice and he gave me some advice and I decided to write his story, what it was like to uh, live through World War Two and to escape the Holocaust and ended up in Russia and what his philosophy on life has been. And this turned into life advice from old people that I used to do. I interviewed hundreds of people, right? This was not a money making thing. It was just I enjoy people. I love getting to know their stories. And I thought. No one talks to old people, right? Like it's very difficult to talk to people in our neighborhood in general. We're all sort of um, walled off. And how cool to talk to these people that you forget of huge histories, right? And I happen to love the elderly. And so I created this thing. And and the the way it sort of comes around is I am now at Antioch in grad school and I take a course on aging and I go into the class and the teacher is using my life advice from old people to teach the class about amazing uh, the elderly. Amazing. That's so cool. It was such a, a great feeling. Yeah. 
and, and I and I love that. I think so many people um, like to try to like find like what am I about? What should I do? Life coach, hire this thing, rather than like look around. Right? I often say to people, just like get your get your fucking eyes off your feet. Look up. Mm. Right? You ju- just stop staring at your feet and look. Right? So like there are things around you all the time that you could do whatever and it doesn't have to be again doesn't have to be a passion doesn't have to be but start something do something right uh this i think one of my kids old disney movies had this line which i like a lot which is like right uh see a need fill a need right so like here's right here's a need yeah you know you never know how it's going to grow and and that proactive approach i i, I like a lot you have so, to have a different relationship to failure yes say more please so I think I think people get afraid to do something because the prospect of failure is so scary that it's not worth trying. Right. And if you can have a different relationship to failure, all of that goes out the window, right? It becomes unimportant. Meaning, right. first of all, what is failure, right? I have a thing that I love to do. And I, so I just told you these two sort of little silly things that I did, right? But right. because to me it was, right, fill a need. I saw a need and I thought, let me fill it. It didn't matter to me whether it made a million dollars or it, was, it wasn't the thing that drove me. The thing that drove me was I just had an idea and I thought, why right. not do it? How cool that we live in a world where I can turn on a camera now and start a YouTube channel or a TikTok, whatever the kids are doing, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever my kids are doing. My so, too. These, this TikTok thing is so weird. But like, <laughs> that's like a whole different thing. Yeah. So um, – you know, we prevent ourselves from doing these things because of fear. And I think if we can get past the idea that, I don't know, numbers or likes or what that means to you and 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 just push yourself to do things, it sort of creates the kind of person who uh, is always pushing forward without fear. And I guess my I, – I, I can sort of name the times in my life for me when I've done it. Like my biggest one, I remember my father dies. I'm a teenager and I – go off to college and I was alone and, and uncomfortable and I come from Miami and I had a lot of walls up and I was angry. And I remember standing there thinking like, I need to go over and introduce myself, something I would have never done that at the time, although you see me as extroverted, I was not right. It was, I, I had so much fear holding me back from the idea of saying hi to people or introducing myself. And I remember thinking at 18 years old, that moment saying like, I need to walk over, say hi to some strangers and introduce myself. To me, that felt like such a big thing that I can tell you now at 46, I still remember the moment. And I did, right? I did this little small step for me because I said, what is the worst that can happen? And as a result, it shifted things for me, right? I made friends. It shifted the way I approach people. It also shifted. I remember taking one of those silly, whatever your personality type is, you know, we can sort of argue the pseudoscience of it, but that ultimately I would have been rated an introvert. Mm. And the truth is, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I love people. You know, a more accurate telling would be, no, I was fearful and I was intimidated and it was difficult for me to to walk over to strangers or to go to a party for me was the worst. Every memory I have as a kid of going into certain things used to give me stomach aches. Right. And that that was all. Well, you're you're Jewish. So, you know, everything gives a stomach. (laughs) What does it give me a stomach ache? Yeah, exactly. Including dairy. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so so two so two questions. Uh, well, a question, a comment. First, I mean, I'll start with the question. I'll repeat it. Right. The the question is, what is that voice in your head? Right. Sort of like what? And how do we? Uh, 
promote and help that voice in your head that says, Iggy, go to the person, put your hand out, shake the thing, like, right? So like this, 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 yeah. right? the voice in the head, it says like, this is the right thing to do, even though you're scared, right? Thing. So, but, but what is interesting before we get to the question is that when you say about introvert and extrovert, um, I believe, right? And, and this is sort of based on Gallup, whatever. I believe that introvert and extrovert is not how most people use it or what it is. That introvert and extrovert is not about how you behave in the world. That is, if you take both me and you and put us at the party, right? Both me and you are pretty much sort of like gregarious. We would have fun. We would talk. We would like, we'd have a, we'd be the life, sure. of, the life of the party, right? Um, but you as an introvert would now need alone time to recharge your battery because you just expanded all your energy. I, as an extrovert, use this energy to now deal with the fact that I have to be alone tomorrow, right? So the difference between an extrovert and introvert is now how they behave, how they act, or even how they're seen, but it is where do you charge your battery? Right. So for you and I, we charge our batteries from people. You and I, I think both uh, similarly love people and recharge your batteries from people and, and crave connection with others. Right. Right. And for some it's, you know, it's the opposite. Right. For me, I probably, my years spent alone as a child were much more lonely. It, right. it came out of a place of unhappiness and dysfunction in my childhood. Right. So what do you think that voice is? And how can we cultivate that voice? Can we create that voice? Or, or can, how can we support that voice in the head that says, you know what to do, do this, right? For people who are listening, for children, for adults, whoever, right? I have a client right now who's we're working on vulnerability with him and he grew up in a house that was abusive, um, physically and mentally. And as a result for him, he is walled up and he comes off uh, tough and, um, very successful in business. But the biggest fear for him is to be vulnerable with another person yet. He craves it, right? It's not as if he doesn't want it. He doesn't want people. The truth is he wants to, but he doesn't know how. And when we start to look at what this fear is, a lot of it is so deeply embedded in a child's point of view, which is as a child, I felt intimidated and powerless and bullied. And so that feeling has persisted into adulthood. So if we start challenging that narrative and we say, well, let's look at your life now. You are financially independent, you're successful, you're a big guy, you're strong. What is the worst that happens if you're vulnerable with another human being? And so we start to even break down what part, what percentage of humanity, right, is, is, uh, is narcissistic the way, you know, your father was? What percentage of society is evil? What percentage of society doesn't care? And, and as we start to write, we talk about do most people care in the world, do most people want connection, do most people. And as we start to do it, we realize the percentages aren't that high for people who are cruel or who are, you know, going to use your vulnerabilities against you. And then we talked about what would happen if you ran across one of those people. So one is, well, you have a good instinct now as an adult and a sense of people and you're doing the work to be able to say, you know what, not a healthy person, not someone I want to be around. And you're able to, you know, disc, you know, uh, disconnect uh, and the friendship, uh, however deeply you sort of are embedded in it. The other is if someone does something to you, you know, negative because of your vulnerabilities, you're not a child anymore, right? What power do they have over you? 
it feels like they have such power over us because as a kid, our parents had such power over us, right? As children, we are limited by our families. We, we really are limited and we're, you know, stuck in our homes. And when, when we're in unhealthy homes, we're unsafe. We are unprotected. And this brings us to the word safe that I used before when I said we do what is safe. What I meant is we do what is comfortable. Now, it's mm-hmm. not safe to continue to be involved with people who bully us because we're being vulnerable or who. But we know that feeling. We're familiar with that feeling. It's familiar. And uh, therefore, we sort of keep doing what's familiar. But what, what, what happens is when we start to challenge it and we become vulnerable with people who are caring and loving, we realize it feels good. And I believe that we, in practice, you know, we all crave uh, doing what feels good. And in practice, we get to see what feels good and we get more used to doing what feels good. And then we start repeating the behavior. It's the same as me at 18, walking over to strangers and saying, hi, how are you? And as a result, I made a group of friends and it sort of shifted the way I looked at life. And the more I did it and the more I practiced it, the more I saw it benefited my life. And if every once in a while I said hello to someone who didn't say hello back or who was cold, what's the worst that happened? I turn around and walk away. Hmm. Fascinating. So, so in many ways, I think, right, both in spiritual practice and in, in therapy, right, this uh, deconstructing of a feeling and, and bringing awareness to it seems to be at the key of, of looking, right? So like, how can I bring more awareness to what I'm feeling, what I used to feel, what I would like to feel, right, within these, within these uh, scenarios, right? And along with like, you know, what's the worst that can happen, right? To say, all right, I have more sovereignty. I have more power than I thought I did. Right. Right. As an adult. As an adult. Yeah. It's much harder with kids. Right. Of course. There's they don't have as much power. Yeah. 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 Um, so, right. Sort of within this sort of like both the Instagram and in general, right. So like what is. Yeah. What is there? Are there patterns? What are people most concerned about? You know, when they write to you, uh, right? Strangers on Instagram, right? Sort of like what, the other thing. At some point, you're like, "Hey, I'll give you a 20 minute consultation on Instagram, right? I have time, sure. right? <laughs> like, you know, like let's do it, right? So, right? So you put yourself out there, which is which is both sort of amazing, but also I think gives you a nice little insight into what are people thinking right now, right? What are people feeling right now? Uh, now meaning Corona, or you just mean where, where in the present? Where, whenever I'm, I'm writing, I get a sense of what's right. People are both. I mean, right. I mean, yes. I mean, right now Corona for sure, but both sort of like, uh, what is the pattern of the human existence, at least in the Western hemisphere? <laughs> Right. Does does everyone is there some sort of collective consciousness where everyone has a sort of similar fear or anxiety? Um, yeah. That or I can what are people, to. Right. Or what are people? What are people uh, curious? My about, questions you know? are varied. So so. I probably have I don't know hundreds of questions in my highlights. I, I try to save right. them so people can go through and read them. And so the questions I get are, interestingly, from therapists. So my my Instagram was private and I decided because I'm a therapist and it should be private. And then one day I decided, why should it be private, right? I mean, I'm sort of to some degree cautious of some things maybe I would put up, but I know I have clients who follow me and that's okay. And I'm aware of sort of what I post. And I decided to, the best I can, um, 
you know, rip away that curtain, so to speak, uh, of therapy, which is that it feels mysterious and scary to people. And I wanted people who didn't have a sense of what therapy is to see that it's much less scary than you imagine. That's actually a really positive, wonderful experience. Not always easy, but ultimately a positive and wonderful experience. So I get questions from from people who've never been to therapy who want to know what is it like in the room? How do you know if someone's a good therapist? You know, um, I see that one. I see that one a lot. Right. Yeah. Right. How do I know if he's a good therapist? Yeah, it's interesting how much that right? comes and up. How, right. And and how how do I know if he's a good therapist for me? Right. So like, those are slightly different, but like, yeah, that that's yep. I see that one a lot on your on the yeah. Instagram. Yeah. That question has been posed to me. That question is oh, every time I post like a weekly, ask me anything, that comes up, because people are so afraid of making the wrong decision. Hmm. And people also hope that you have a criteria that helps them make a decision. Right. People, when they come to therapy, want you to make decisions for them. Right. I, I have a new client who said to me, it's it's so much – it's so different with you because my last therapist would sort of just truth bomb me and tell me what to do. <laughs> and she said, you don't. Right. Maybe well, I truth bomb, but right. I don't tell her what to do, right? Right. That's not therapy and, telling you what to do, right? Of course <laughs> like, not. But – but she was, you know, in a relationship with a therapist and the therapist took a very directive approach. I, and right. I don't want to judge right or wrong. I just, I don't believe in that as it's no longer therapy, right? It's life coaching. Right. I also don't think it which helps is, you. Is, right. Which is closer to what I do, right? Which is closer to what we spiritual counselors do. Yes. Right? So that yes. Could, right. Right. And that, and that is a big distinction, I think, for a lot of people. But yeah. And on. in terms of therapy, right? I want people to come to those decisions themselves. I, I, I don't want to, I'll, I'll get to it, but I want to answer your, your first question, right. which is um, why people write me saying, you know, how do I know if this therapist is a good fit? Right. For me? And so um, therapy is scary. Therapy can be costly. And the idea of walking in a room with a stranger and exposing ourselves in such an intimate way is, you know, uh, um, is a risk. And, they want to make sure that they're mitigating their risk as much as possible. And I totally understand that. So people want to feel safe. So while I would say different therapists are good for different people for different reasons, right? Um, some is that we just have an instinct that this person is right for me. We come in, we meet another human being. Don't forget this is another human being and it's a relationship. And I believe I've always said, regardless of theoretical orientation, that your relationship to the therapist is everything. And the science backs that up. So gestalt, humanistic, modern, psychodynamic, it doesn't matter in terms of the rate of success. Your relationship to the therapist is everything. And so that is a very important piece to it. I would say that in terms of something to look for, right? For me, something to look for would be the kind of space where I know I am safe. Safe meaning safe to be vulnerable, safe to even ask questions about the process, safe to say I feel uncomfortable, safe to say I don't like the way you're treating me, right? All of those to me are very important in therapy, but you need to uh, be in a space that allows for that. And so those are the kind of things I would, I would lean people towards. Um, the other kind of questions I get are from therapists, interestingly, which I did not expect when I did this, is how many therapists are following me and write me about their own uh, mm. fears and caseloads and what do I do when blank happens, right? right? And so you realize how often therapists also need to have, you know, when we're training to be therapists, you know, a therapist, most of us or a lot of us get an undergrad in psychology for four years, then we do a two-year master's, mm -hmm. and then we have about three years of training to get our 3,000 hours or three years right. or so. And all of that is done under supervision. So we always have someone to bring cases to and discuss the cases with. And then you're on your own. 
And for some therapists, that's a really scary notion. So one, I hope that therapists are, you know, often in therapy. It's important. And the other is you can always create your own supervision groups, peer supervision groups. And so for some of my friends, I sort of have become the go to, Mm -hmm. not because I'm an expert or I, I mean, meaning because I'm the sort of leader of the group. It's just people are more comfortable writing me. And maybe I'm the kind of person who sort of set up that scenario where it's okay. Mm -hmm. But as a result, I, you know, have a big group of people that can discuss cases with me and that we've created this sort of peer supervision group, so to speak, that eventually could be turned into a weekly supervision if we wanted it to. But I think that's very important for therapists to, to do, especially if they're uncomfortable with their work or uncomfortable with certain cases, right? I think when when you have a case where it's triggering you in a lot of ways because your own stuff is coming up or you realize there are areas in your life you haven't worked through or you feel it's out of scope for your practice, then you consult with someone that's really important and you refer out or you figure out what's going on with you, you do the work. Therapists always need to be doing the work. So that's a second sort of kind of person who writes me. The other is I have people in therapy who write me constantly to try to get insight into their own therapy. That is, that is another sort of big bubble of people that write me because they want to know what their therapist is thinking or doing and what am I doing in my practice and what would you do with blank and here's a hypothetical or here's what my therapist does. They try to get me. (laughs) Yes. So that, that's another thing. And, and then lastly is just the curiosity about therapy and feelings and, and the psychoeducational component to it, which is what is, anxiety? What is bipolar disorder? What does it mean to be borderline? What does it mean to be in a relationship with someone who is blank? Um, you know, it's not lastly, because I also get people who, who, who write me about their own sort of addiction issues. As you know, I do a lot of work in addiction. And so people write me about, you know, how do I know if I'm an addict? What do I do? Resource stuff. People need resources right. Right. and they're scared. Um, so it's been really interesting for me. It was something that I, I never thought I would do because in some ways you could say I'm old school in terms of the way I look at therapy, that I, I love psychodynamic therapy and I believe in the process. And, uh, you know, there's some therapies that I <clears throat> might disagree with sort of the way they're done. But in another, I believe that unlike the old school, uh, a therapist does not need to be a blank slate. In fact, I think a therapist being a blank slate is harmful to the process. And so this Instagram thing of opening the world up has been really interesting. And, and I, I, I know that clients are, are watching it and I'm okay with it. So what they're seeing is that I have children or I might joke on Instagram about my kids. And it, at times things that I posted on Instagram end up coming into the session, which is, Hey, I saw you posted blank. Mm. Can we talk about it? So I know that whatever I'm posting might be, you know, grist for the mill. Or or part of a really innovative, cutting edge um, therapeutic tool, right? Because I think we live in this integrated world, right? I think long gone are the days where we are these sort of siloed creatures that don't and can't bring ourselves into, into the mix, right? I think this is true for, for spiritual counseling, for rabbinic, for rabbinics as well, I think, right? So that, that the the Instagram social media aspect is incredibly important. Plus, I think like you, I get to connect to people that otherwise would have never been able to find me or the work that we do or, right? Or ask those questions in a safe space, right? Because well, they really want to know. You're a great example, I was going to say, of, of a rabbi who has a different relationship with his clients, so to speak, 
Right. You don't, you don't have a clergy, you, you're, you know, you're running a rehab, uh, mm-hmm. you do a lot of addiction work and the relationship they have with you is surely not one that I had with my rabbi growing up. Right. right. That, <laughs> that although you, uh, can discuss halacha like a learned Jew, um, the old school, let's say part of right. it, you also bring a very sort of modern sensibility to what it, uh, uh to what it's like to be a rabbi uh, in this day and age and what, and probably what you found was lacking as a child with your relationship with rabbis. Yeah, and the same absolutely. as I found lacking with my relationship with rabbis. Yeah, absolutely. You are, you are every man's rabbi. Oh, thank you. That's kind. Right. Um, yeah, I try. Regardless of, regardless of religious affiliation. I mean, That's when right. I say that. Religious affiliation, whatever it is. Right. So like, and also because of the work that we do, right. So like I was just telling somebody else that right in my office, I've had, I've had murderers, I have thieves, I had prostitutes, I had drug yeah. dealers, I had murder, like I had like, you know, like con men, right? I had pretty much every single person that our Jewish grandmother <laughs> warned us about was in my office, right? Right. And, and I love them just as much, right? Sort of like in that sense to work with them. But I want to highlight something we just were talking about, but also you said before, to write the sort of the, the most important thing, this connection, uh, right? With, with the therapist or whoever you're, you're working with yeah. as, as the basic, uh, a key to to any meaningful relationship, right? Therapeutic or not, mm-hmm. right? Um, and how that comes up in spirituality, that comes up in therapy, that comes up in mentorship and coaching and work, like that comes up co- over and over and over again, right? It's sort of that the driving force behind so much of both our pain and our successes is how we connect and see ourselves part of a whole or one-on-one, right? So the the soul-to-soul connection of a person. Sure. I, the difference between you and me, I guess, is that I might sit in a room with someone who has a personality disorder or a lot of difficulty connecting, and I continue to do the work regardless, right? Meaning I'm not choosing them as a friend, but that right. my work is to be very on top of my own counter-transference, but to help them see how others view them. Right. So one that's done in my group, I also run group therapy, which is great because people get to see how others view them. And then we get course, to work in accordance. I mean, you know, of course you do. Like, of course. I have a group. I have this thing. I, have this thing. I, have this thing. I just got canceled last week. You know, next week I'm decided to like, you know, develop a coronavirus, uh, you know, vaccine. So, you know, but, but I have an hour for you right now, Iggy. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's my own stuff. <laughs> I also have trouble saying no to people. <laughs> I mean, I'm on your podcast. I have a full day as soon as I hang up with this. That's right. So, so sometimes um, I take advantage of other people, <laughs> of people who can't say no. Personality, exactly, personality disorders. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, um, the relationship I don't have to have a relationship with a person that is immediately loving. In fact, mm. it might not be. But mm. what's wonderful in therapy is as we start to do the work. I start to feel closer to them as they start to shift and I'm able to point that out. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt so much closer to you today, Iggy, you know, or, or in that moment. It's mm-hmm. interesting. When you said that, Iggy, I suddenly felt like much closer to you. I understood you in a different way, right? And so you get to have positive reinforcement and see that, oh, I guess, uh, you know, some of the ways I've been behaving in the world have really caused some interpersonal conflicts, you know, outside of this therapy room. And mm-hmm. if I tried something different, that might work. That might be okay. I might be safe. That 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 makes me jealous, right? Because I, right, as a rabbi, as a spiritual person, walk into the room with the love, right? Sort of as soon as, soon as you start talking to me, as soon as I look you in the eyes, that's it, right? I'm hooked. 
it's very difficult for me to to not love the human being, the soul in front of me. So I love the person in front of me or I wouldn't do the work, right? The difference is I don't have to love the way I'm being treated, right? Whereas maybe you would say, regardless, I hold this sort of unconditional love towards them. For me, it's really important that I not be triggered by the mean things they say, or it's not about that, right? It's about, I, I want to help them sort of heal what's going on inside of with them, uh, uh, inside of them and help them behave differently in the world. Mm-hmm. And for you, I think what you do is you approach with a very unconditional loving position regardless yeah. and help them connect to the spiritual side of themselves. Yeah, we're, we're doing true. different work in different, Absolutely. you know, in different ways, both, both are beneficial. I mean, I, I, yeah. I know the work you do, obviously we worked in the same facility and we've shared clients, you and I, we have indeed, um, you know, so you and I have shared clients, uh, who have been difficult for a myriad of reasons. Right. And we've done the work, you know, we've approached the work each in our own way and have worked together right. and have met together to discuss the cases. That's right. That's right. Do you, th- do you think, uh, do you think people should have like multiple people working with them on sort of what they do? Like, right. Having a, a therapist. Yeah. Or so, you know, like, you so, know. so that was unique, right? When you work in a rehab, like we did, it's an inpatient right. rehab that allowed for this sort of three-legged stool. I think they had a drug counselor, they had a spiritual counselor, and they had a therapist. And most people in the world do not get that, right? It's also, it's costly, it's difficult, it's, you know, even time-consuming, you could argue. That it's only within an inpatient rehab where everything is shut down in your life and you're living there that you can have so much, you know, it's wonderful. I'm, you know, in no way against it. But um, it's, it's not necessarily always realistic for everyone's lifestyles. I also very... You know, I, I love it in my private practice. I always wanted to see a diversity of clients. So, mm-hmm. you know, like you, I still get, you know, the clients who came out of prison or out of the rehab and, and people right. with, you know, who are functioning in very uh, uh, difficult ways, regardless, you know, of whatever it is, personality disorders or um, um, uh, psychological disorders. And then I also have very high functioning clients and I have you know, I have a lot of actor clients, some who are extremely successful, right? The work I'm doing with them is around what it's like to be so wealthy and so famous. And how do I operate in the world that way? Sure. Underneath, we all have, you know, no, no. I mean, I I, I will say, I don't know if you can't, I mean, I'm sure you can't uh, deny or confirm, but like some of my clients when I was in LA, right. Who were like that, right. So celebrities, every famous, like, right. The work with them is like how to help them not be miserable. Because a lot of them are just like with all this money and fame, and you would think they would be quote unquote happy. They're they're miserable, perhaps even more miserable than the average person. Right. The, the, the first thing I did before I was even a licensed therapist, so I was still getting hours. I was working at a rehab, and I went to a private practice, and I was an associate, and I started an entertainment group. Right. It had never I had never heard of one. No one had done one. I thought I'm from entertainment. I love group therapy. As you know, I was running gambling groups and I was running family groups and I was pretty involved in the group world. And I thought, how cool if I could put together a therapy group of people who are solely in entertainment. And so it's the first thing I did. And I created this group. And it was fascinating for the group because in the group were some people who were successful. You know, uh, one client was on a TV show and everyone imagined that her life was different than it was. And how fascinating for them to see like, oh, this thing that I've been sort of seeking and craving, you know, may not look the same from the other side. Um, And the other was, uh, there was a moment I thought was really interesting, which is everyone was talking about how difficult it was 
as I said to you, right, I felt out of control. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I felt out of control in my work. But what I didn't say is that I also created a ton of work, which is how I took control. As an actor, I was limited with what I could do or even getting representation. But I just started to write and shoot my own stuff, which is how I always succeeded. My success was always based on me saying, you know what? I'm going to just going to do this thing and see what happens. And I would write something and I would shoot it and I would. And so I remember sitting with a group and they were sort of stuck in that same scenario, right? I'm a producer, but it's so hard. I'm trying to put together projects and I don't know what to do. I'm a writer and I'm sitting alone with my scripts in the coffee shop and this sucks and can't get anyone to read it or my agent's not doing anything. I'm an actor and I'm auditioning. It's not going anywhere, et cetera. And I said, if we just look at this group, literally just the group that we have right now, Every single one of you is capable of working together to create something. I mean, we had someone who could direct. We had a DP. I had a producer. I had a writer. I had an actor. It's so funny. We forget. We're a production company, basically. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? We tell ourselves we're stuck. We have to rely on someone else, and that person's not hiring me, and this sucks. I used to sit on my block before I moved to Studio City. I lived, you know, in the apartments, uh, you know, in the Fairfax district, I still miss and love that neighborhood. And I remember thinking, it's so crazy how many people are struggling. But if you just looked from my block from Oakwood to Rosewood, and I had everyone step outside and talk about what they did, we could literally make, you know, a move. There was every single person in the business from wardrobe to sound design to right composers were all living in this tiny block. And that's all over the city. And it's amazing how, again, we tell ourselves, nope, not possible. Can't do it. I'm stuck. I'm all on my own. Simply because of fear, right? Fear to step out and say, hey, man, what do you do? Hey, what do you like to go? Which is what a friend of mine and I did, which was, hey, you know what? Like, this is so hard. We met, we were working on a commercial together. And we were like, what if we go write our own stuff? You want to try that? Want to go shoot it? Want to put together a team and see what we can do? And as a result, we were able to sell projects. And and I think that's true for, I think that's true for a lot of industries, right? A lot of people feel like, Oh, if only somebody saw my book or saw my art or saw my like, right, whatever it is, right? So, like, if only somebody, uh, uh, and we, 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 like we said in the beginning, we kind of bind ourselves to this sort of narrative of like, this can't work, this ain't, this can't work for me, you know, th- there's no way out rather than, yeah, like, what is the way out, right? Knowing that there's a way out, right? And I think in that sense, it's a shift of perspective. Right, you have to stop thinking about right as we used to say, like from an either or perspective to a both end. Both right? end, yeah. right? There is a way out. Now figure out what it is, rather than say to yourself like I don't think there is a way out, rather than feel trapped. Um, so how do you so right? So we we talked a little bit about like you know uh, how do you know if it's a good therapist, right? Which is I think right you can't just like right start and see, right? Uh, See if it's a good like, fit. Right, exactly. Right. It's like a little I bit say like to digging, people, right? Yeah. I say let's let's why don't we both why don't we meet and see if it's a fit for both of us. Right, right. Um have you have you refused clients? Have you said like, you know, sorry, I can't work with you? <laughs> like, you know, have you said to somebody like, no. Um I have never had a client that wasn't a good fit or didn't work for me. I've had clients who've been more difficult, but I, I I have had clients sort of get angry, meaning um, I'm trying to think of an example that would, that would, well, you and I worked in a rehab situation, right? Right. So some people who come into the rehab, um, oh, I have a kid example. I I was lucky in that the clients who saw me, I was like, I never had clients drop me, right? I Mm -hmm. I used to feel proud, even though why wouldn't a client drop me? But my own ego was like, ah, I'm the one therapist who no client will ever drop. And someone... (laughs) And then a client dumped me. 
And I remember thinking, <laughs> oh my God, I'm dumped. And so I decided to go back to the client and say like, you know, I'm open to you seeing someone else. I think it's great, but why don't we just talk about what happened right. and, and why you taught me and how you're feeling. And she came back to me and not only came back to me, she's a client who has continued to see me after she left the rehab and up until now. I mean, even with no money, I charged her whatever yeah. she could afford. And I've seen her for, you know, years since, and it's been right. amazing work, but <clears throat> I have had clients who, who aren't ready to do the work, right? So some is you go to therapy because you want to work on something and you spend, right. you could argue that you spend the rest of therapy, you know, in resistance. And so there are clients who come who have just difficulty moving the needle. So I have, if you could say it's dumping a client, I have said to a client, you know, it doesn't seem like much work's getting done and it doesn't seem like you're ready to do the work. And that might be the case. And so we're limited, right? Like I'm wasting, I'm not someone who does this for money. Like this was not a get rich quick scheme. I have no interest in seeing clients who don't want to do the work. So I'll say, let's look at it, right? What are you getting out of therapy? What do you want to do? And, and, and we'll look at that. And if they're not ready, they're not ready. Right. Do you believe in, in, or or I guess, how do you feel about the model of um, using therapy for something specific, you know, or for a specific period of time, rather than sort of people who have the relationships for like years and years and years with the the same therapist? Do you have a, yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm not a a therapist who believes in sort of short-term therapy and I have, and I'm, you know, we'll see clients for years. If here's what I do. The first thing I do is I ask you what your goal is in therapy, right? So I want to get a sense of why you're coming to therapy. The problem with it being short-term is sometimes people will come to me, not sometimes, often people come to you when they're in crisis, right? Right. By the time people come to you, a certain kind of client, right? They, They come in crisis and you do the work to work through that crisis. And when the crisis is over with, they think therapy is over with and it's not right. Now we can start Mm -hmm. doing the work. The problem is the client's like, well, all right, I'll let you know if I'm ever in crisis again. Thanks so much. Great meeting you. Right. And, and I think, oh, what a disappointment. It's kind of like a doctor model, right? I come to doctor, you fix that I go. Yeah. Thanks so much. And there's so much work to be done. Right. But now, now that their, you know, symptoms are, are, are uh, alleviated, like we can really start doing deep work. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. Um, And then I have people who are, you know, totally open to it. And I have clients I see for years and um, I enjoy that work. But, but that being said, I also have clients I have um, told, uh, I have clients who I've said uh, to them that I, I think our work's done, which is essentially like, you seem to be doing really great. And, uh, you know, I, I'll explore what they're getting out of therapy, but I think that this is, it's just an area where you feel comfortable and safe coming here, but I think you're ready to, you know, mm. <laughs> be on your own for a bit and see what it's like that, okay. that, that I become a crutch for them and I don't want to be a crutch. Right. right. If, if someone, it's like that directive therapist we talked about with the other client, a therapist might get caught in that because it feels so good to have someone rely on us and for us to give right. all the answers. Right. And I, and I don't want that. I want to help clients be able to have their own observing ego and be able to make decisions for themselves. I want to get them to that place. That that. being said, if a client who says, you know, I'm an example, let's say of someone who, who did the work, right. And yet I continued to do therapy for years. Now, the reason why was not because I couldn't function in the world. Um, You know, I, I would argue that I'm pretty high functioning and that I can do well without it, but that having that space for me once a week for 50 minutes was so such a gift 
that I loved being able to process. It wasn't always moving the needle, so to speak, but it was a place for me to process something. Right. And, and I needed that for a period of time. And I think it was really helpful. And then my relationship with my therapist would shift, right? It went from, I showed up because I needed a father figure, right? I've dead dad issues. And then I did the work <laughs> and then it became a mentorship and it became about therapy and it became, um, so I, I don't have a problem with people seeing a therapist for years, but I, do think that people can use therapy as a crutch and they get scared to exit. Right. But mostly that's not what happens. The majority of people work on a crisis and as soon as that crisis is done, they they disappear because it's really difficult to sit in and do the work. It's yeah. not easy. I no, commend not, anyone who does it. It's not. I like that you said, like, again, right, you said observing ego, a little bit like we talked before, so this mindfulness and, and sort of all that. So um, I, I like that. That's cool. Um are there any things that you've heard in therapy that made you go like, what the fuck? Like, like are there moments that you're like, what? Right. To sort of, or, or, or if you've seen it, like I've seen it all, like, you know, I've, I've am heard I, am I, like, am I ever surprised? Is more, more, than, more than surprised. Have you ever been like, what the, like, I, Sort of like I sort of like taking you need like a mental minute to be like I, I have to wrap my head around whatever it is you're telling me or asking me or whatever. So I don't want to give any stories in case anyone I know is listening. Of course, of and, course. Because especially with cases like that, right? Right. But I have been very surprised by the way some people have lived their lives <laughs> um, at times. Uh, you know, like you, I've heard it all, so to speak, right? Right. It is rare that I would be surprised by much, right. but I'm surprised sometimes by a therapist I work with who who uh, was using for years, right. years, and I just could not believe how a therapist was functioning for that long while using. And this therapist thought, you know, it didn't affect my work. Now, mm-hmm. as as um, we worked on sobriety and things changed. Mm-hmm. This therapist realized how different they were in the room and what was going on for them. Oops. But for me, I, I take therapy so seriously that, you know, I mean, obviously I'm well aware of how addiction, you know, yeah. can interfere with our lives. Um, you know, you and I do the work constantly with people, but I have always, held therapy to such a high standard that when someone tells me they had a therapist who was, you know, unethical or was, I just get like, it kills me. And then there's other ways that people live their lives that are just so different than yours. But ultimately I, I'm not a terribly judgmental person. I, I am fascinated by the, by the way people live their lives. And, and I love that we all make choices that work for us. And, mm. and I, I work with so many clients who live lives that aren't necessarily the lives that I would live, but right. I appreciate it and love it and find it so interesting how we can all make these choices. What I want people to do is work on their conflicts and to, you know, work on all of our inner conflicts and find a life that makes sense for them. And in no way does it have to look like the way I live my life. Right. Do you think, do you think that speaking of recovery and people, people recovery, do you think it's important for people in recovery or at least to, 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 to seek therapy, to be in a therapeutic relationship? Yes. yes. To be in a therapeutic relationship. Yes. Not a romantic yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I say that because when you and I worked in a rehab, that was a, that, oh, that would yeah. come up a lot. No, absolutely. I, it's funny because, right, yes, I was one of the more ardent people who were like, I, you cannot be in a relationship in the beginning of sobriety. It just, you can't. There's just no way I will, quote unquote, allow it. You know? Yeah, right, right. And, I, and, so, and it's yeah. right. And it's funny because I have dumped clients over that. I said, like, if you want that, that's great, but I can't work with you. Because you felt it was interfering with the process so yeah, much. Yeah, because I think like because you there's there's no chance you can actually properly focus on uh, on the on the on the recovery, and that's fine. That's your choice, but that means that so there will always be a barrier for me in working with you. And and, and sure, you know. I mean one one of the most difficult cases I had where we worked was a woman. Oh, that was tough work. Who had such a tough childhood. I mean. Right. really one of the harder childhoods I've ever heard of um, and started dating and it wasn't frowned upon and it should have been. And right. she ended up getting pregnant and having to leave. And right. as a result, right, therapy ended. And I could not imagine this person was going to become a mother with the amount of work that was needed she to be done. Right. Yeah. I think about that all the time, actually. Like it comes up for me a lot. Yeah. I have, I have clients that are, who couldn't stay with me even after I start working with them so that I think about them. I mean, you and I both have a client who yeah. uh, overdosed who I right. think about oh, tons, unfortunately. all the I time mean, as well. Yeah, I met a shared client of ours. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so back to that. So like, so, so therapeutic relationships with, uh, in addiction and, and what, what should they expect from it, right? Right. When they walk into the office and say like, oh, hey, I'm, you know, so and so and so it's interesting because if I think about how I work, although I'm psychodynamic and I work differently with different people because I'm a human being and I think different people need to be, you know, right. you, you have different relationships with. But I also think people at different stages in their lives or in their, you know, psychological you know, in their psychological stuff and whether it's addiction or, you know, deep in uh, um, uh, uh, psych disorder need to be spoken to differently and can't do the same kind of work. So uh, although I just did a terrible job at explaining it, if someone comes to me <laughs> after years of heroin abuse, uh, living on the streets for three years, you know, in and out of prison, comes into my office, um, the kind of work we do is different, especially simply based on the concept that uh, they are still detoxing, that it takes, you know, a, a long period of time before they can even function in the same way. And therefore the thought processes aren't the same. And I can't do the same work as I could with someone who comes into my office high functioning immediately. So I'm holding the space in a very different way. And so that kind of work, it takes longer. I still think it's important. I think you have to be able to adjust as a therapist. And and that was a real big, I would say, learning curve for me was that, you know, I'm glad that I'm someone who's because like you, I love people and, and you and I have, you know, lived lives and have spoken to all kinds of people. And, you know, we, we are we are complex individuals. We're men able men of to, the world. We are men of the world. Right. Um <laughs> But that, but that you and I aren't someone in a box, right? Like, right. you know, I always felt, I always thought it was so hard for a 23-year-old, 24-year-old intern who shows up there without much understanding of the world and is thrown into these rooms and obviously intimidated and overwhelmed. And, you know, it was, it, it, it's, 
a very different experience for them and for the client than for someone like us who who are older, who've lived our lives, who, you know, have a very different take on 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 people. And and therefore I think you and I had an easier time adjusting to that maybe than someone else is what it meant. But still it was a learning curve in the sense that I came in, you know, ready to be a therapist, and I would sit in a room with someone and realize, oh, this guy's been doing meth for the last, you know. 10 years like I, you know this this is not happening right yeah. or this guy's still nodding off or right. and so um including having clients who have nodded off because right. they you know just shut up before they saw you and you realize that they you know uh, sticking drugs at, yeah are high exactly. um so that was unique for me um and and taught me a lot in terms of how to uh adjust myself to who comes in the room and it speaks to anyone in private practice too. Different people come in and, and you really need to, to some degree, mirror what's going on. You need to be able to read what's going on and read them and adjust accordingly. And I think the better you are doing that, the better therapist you can become. Mm. You know, there's certain things that I think make a great therapist. And, you know, one is a non-judgmental approach in the room. The other is being able to be very curious. I'm constantly curious about them. And everything I ask and do is about curiosity. And then having done so much of my own work that, you know, although we all feel counter transference, right, I can use it as, as why am I feeling this and what's going on? And often uh, I have a very good understanding of it because I've done so much work and it's really a useful tool for me as a therapist. Interesting. So you, you, you use some of the lessons you learn for yourself as well. It sounds like a good therapist should have done a lot of therapy. A good therapist should understand themselves so well. So when I'm feeling something in the room, I understand what that's, what that is. Right. So I understand, um, first of all, I'm able to separate out, is this because of me? Did this sort of land in a way because of my own abandonment stuff? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that being said, is that something the client's feeling right? Or is this an induced feeling that the client is sort of putting on me because they want me to understand how they feel, which is scared or anxious or whatever right. it is. And a, a, I think a good therapist is very aware of those feelings and on top of them and able to explore them. And I care about being a great therapist. It, it is constant work for me. I, I, I love it and I will never be lazy. I, I love that. And that's what makes you a great therapist and a great person. And, and I love the curiosity, right? Just sort of, it sounds like everything else is sort of a good therapy session. A good therapist is somebody who is constantly living a life, an examined life, a life of examination. Yes. That, that's true for recovery. That's true for spirituality. And that's true for therapy. And that's true for a lot of other uh, good things in life. Um, Seth, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Fascinating. For me. You're welcome. I'm glad we could do this. Absolutely, I miss you, absolutely. Iggy. I miss you too. I miss you too. Uh, <laughs> thank you everybody for listening to Tattoos and Torah. Uh, again, Seth, if people want to find you on Instagram, you are your handle? Uh, the Life of a Therapist or right. Seth Menachem. I think both would take you there. Great. So uh, uh, follow him. Uh, again, as usual, if you have questions for me or for Seth, uh, we both pretty pretty clear that we're open to talk to, <laughs> to people all the time. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, you know how to find us. We're on Apple. We're on Spotify. Uh, check out the chubacenter.org for everything else that we offer uh, and all the free groups that we offer throughout the week. So thank you again. Uh, see you next week. Thank you.